Welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast where top executives share their insights on leadership and talent development. I'm your host for this episode, Susan Gallagher, President and CEO of BPI Group. In this episode, we'll speak with Rob Brown, Managing Director and CEO North America at Lincoln International, a global middle market investment bank, ranked number one globally for advising private equity clients on sell-side engagement this year. We'll discuss Rob's views on leadership, both for his own firm and what he sees in leading successful mergers. So with that, let's get started. Let's start by talking a little bit about your background and how you evolved into a leader at Lincoln International. I've been with Lincoln essentially since the beginning when we were seven people in Chicago. Today, we have 650 people with 21 offices in 16 countries. So it's a long journey that I'll try to boil down here. But I think one of the ways I really developed and evolved as a leader is applying how I looked at generating business and connecting with clients to how we built the firm. And and interestingly, I think some of the skills to, in the professional services world, some of the skills to become a trusted advisor, to get somebody to hire you to affect change, are some of the similar skills to really lead a professional service organization where you live and die with your ability to attract, retain, and engage people. Highly talented, highly sophisticated, highly intelligent people. And so I think Part of it was, I think at first you have to lead by example. You have to show that, hey, this is somebody that can connect with clients. They can be trusted and viewed as a true advisor. And then people around the firm start looking at you as, hey, this is somebody that's very successful in what we do. So I think you have to, at least in our world, you have to kind of establish that. Because if you're going to lead people who are doing that, you have to show that you're exceptionally adept at that. And But then really taking those same skills, the skills to really source business are the same skills to source and develop talent. And it really gets to connecting with people, listening to people. I also think early on, I had a self-realization that particularly in people-oriented businesses, culture is the driver of success. And I heard another speaker say, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I heard that years ago, and that resonated with me. You have to have a good strategy, but if you have a good strategy without a culture that's really going to attract, retain, and engage people, it's probably not going to matter. And so for myself, it's really my North Star, is what we're doing going to create a culture where people want to be at for the long term. And if you can get great people and get them to stay for the long term and have them engaged, you're going to grow your business. Most people think that leading professional services firms is one of the most challenging leadership roles There is, because you're leading peers and uh, high performers and experts in the space. Lincoln is involved in a lot of important M&A activity, as we talked about, around the world. 225, if I read that right last year, that's a big number. We're one of the most, if not the most global M&A advisor on the planet. So from a leadership perspective, what do you find CEOs or investors are looking for in leaders when they're acquiring businesses? To me, I think there's really three things. One, they have to have a vision. What I found is buyers and investors, yes, you're buying a company, but you have to have somebody that's going to lead it. And I think a lot of investors feel and companies feel when they're buying something that, hey, we have lots of managers. We can put somebody in here to manage if we needed to. What's really rare is a vision. And so I think leaders that have a vision 
and then a strategy that's tied to that vision and leaders that focus on making sure the people around them are engaged, that it's not a one-person show. We've said this in the past. When we're selling a company, you can have the same exact company, and often the difference between a good outcome and selling that company and a great outcome is the strength of the leader. And if I think about the characteristics, I think it's vision. I think it's somebody that understands culture is important, and it's somebody that wants to build a team around them, empower other leaders to really drive change where it doesn't all sit with them. So vision, strategy, and team. Yeah. Do you see a difference in different countries? That's a really good question. And I think slightly, but I think this concept of vision is universal. I think people want to invest behind people that have a vision, conviction to a vision, and a strategy that's going to support it. I do think the standards of management, and there's certain countries around the world, I think the U.S. is one of them, where anybody in a meeting can generally feel free to speak up, regardless if they're junior or senior. I think we tend to be a little flatter in our approach to leadership and management. And there's certain countries around the world that are much more pyramid and much more autocratic, and junior people are not empowered to speak up as much. And some of that's cultural. And so I think you have to be sensitive to that. So I think there are some universal elements, and I think then there's some tactical things and some cultural norms that you have to be sensitive to around the world. Rob, will you talk a little bit about your experience with culture and leadership and where those two intersect? What role does culture play in both your own business and in the companies you've guided? With Lincoln, and you talk about the intersection of culture and leadership, I don't think it's an intersection. I think they're on the same line. Organizations' culture is driven by their leaders. And there's lots of examples of if you change the leader, the culture changes. And I don't care how big the company is. Look at General Electric. Jack Welch, when he led that company, there was a certain culture because there were certain behaviors that he rewarded and he set. And you change the leader, and this is nothing against Jeff Immelt because I've, I've met Jeff. I think he's a great manager and a great leader. But you saw the culture change there pretty quickly when you change the leader. So to me, leadership drives the culture in organizations. So I don't, it's not an intersection. They're one and the same. From a Lincoln perspective, culture is our most guarded asset. If you look at our firm, and we've grown from nothing to be one of the largest in what we do, and all of our competitors have been around longer than us, the question is, well, how are you able to do that? How are you able to? And right. we've got some great competitors, and it's culture. Because we don't pay more than our competitors. We don't work on better transactions than our competitors. We're not smarter than our competitors. So then the question is, well, what do you have that's unique that's allowed you to grow this firm and attract talent over the long term? It's culture. So if something's going to be important to you, I think there's three things you have to do with it. First of all, you have to define it. You have to define your culture. And when we were small, we knew we had this unique culture, and you'd kind of know it when you see it. You were one office. But as you grow and you have different offices and different groups and different products, you then have to step back and say, well, we really needed to define our culture. And so we actually stepped back, and there's a document out there on culture. It's the Netflix culture statement that's been around for a long time that somebody turned me on to. And I went and looked at it, and it's a long document. It was like an 80-page PowerPoint it defines their culture, but then it also gets into the behaviors that drive the culture. And we step back and said, hey, we really need to do this. We really, we have to define it, and then we have to send this to all of our employees. And so we stepped back, and we took months, and we basically said, what is our culture in a one-page statement? And then as we think about what are the behaviors and the actions that we think 
define it. So we have a culture document that we've probably narrowed it down to 50 or 60 pages now. It's got a one-page summary. We send that to all employees every year. We have a one-pager of it that is up in every one of our offices. Every one of our 21 offices has this, and they have it on every floor. So you have to communicate it so everyone knows this is Lincoln's culture. This is what makes him unique. And then you got to measure to it. And so what we have done for many years now is we have a third party that comes in and does a survey of all of our employees. And we call it our engagement survey, but it's really a culture survey. And there's tactical things that we have in that survey that relate to what's going on in our business and, you know, what do you want to see and, and how do you feel about your managers. But there's actually six or seven questions embedded in there that are developed by behavioral psychologists that measure engagement. And engagement's a proxy for culture. The more engaged your employees are, the more connected to the organization they are, the more you're living up to your cultural promise. And so we measure this every year, and we get the data back, and we look at the data by country, we look at it by industry group, we look at it by product group, we look at it by office, and where we see it not trending the right way, we're, and it's like nirvana, you never achieve it. There's right. always improvement to get there. We look at the data, we'll go to the leaders of whatever that group is and say, listen, you're trending the wrong way. We'll typically then have this third party do a focus group. I mean, if it was associates in a certain area of the firm, just didn't seem as engaged, let's go find out why. And let's not have it be Lincoln people. Let's have third party facilitators in a focus group draw out of them what's going on. And we look at it every single year. And so you define it, you measure it, and you manage to it. When you're not living up to your cultural promise, that's when you lose your ability to attract, retain, and engage talent. And so it's incredibly important to us. If you give me two companies, one that has an A culture and a Me Too strategy, and one that has a cutting edge strategy and a bad culture, I'd invest in the first one all day long. You're, you're going to have a better outcome. And it leads into your second question, have I seen this in specific examples? We worked with the shareholders and management was a very large shareholder of a strategic consulting firm called the Chartist Group here in Chicago that's really the leading independent strategy consultant to healthcare and largely hospitals and providers. And it's just interesting. I ended up advising the company for three years before they decided to sell. And what they wanted to do was hire somebody that could really get to know the company because they said, we have a very special culture here. And when we go to find our next partner, we want an advisor that really understands that culture. And we don't think you can understand that unless you really get to know us over a period of years, which is unique in our business. Normally, we'll get hired, we'll work with the company for six, seven, eight months, and then we'll sell the company, right? And we get to know a bit about the business for sure, but we don't really immerse ourselves in it all the time. And so this was an opportunity to immerse myself in it. And the leaders of this company acknowledged that what made them special was culture. And they really were a mission-driven company to improve the, the lives of people through better healthcare, basically. And so people connect with that mission, and that mission drove the culture. And so I really got to know their culture. So when I went to market for this business, I knew it was special. And I could engage investors in a way that says, we work with a lot of companies. This is a truly special company, given the culture that they have. And obviously, you can see it in the financial results, what they've built. But what gives it sustainability, if you're an investor coming and say, how do I know these results are going to continue, is a culture. And there's lots of examples of it. That's a recent one. Again, happens to be another professional service organization because I think culture is important everywhere. But if you're a professional service organization, you don't have patents, you don't have intellectual property, you don't have a factory that nobody else has. Like, 
your assets are your people, and what keeps them connected is culture. So not every company has a strong culture, and we talked a little bit about, you know, it used to be the employee handbook that was what you wanted everybody to read and have when they started with the company, and now it sounds it's like it's your culture statement, yeah. which is almost, yeah, you got rules and regs that you've got to go through, but that culture statement is really what you want them to embrace. Companies that don't have as strong a culture, you're advising them, do you give advice on what do you need to do to make this merger work? You hear a lot about failed mergers. You hear a lot about less successful mergers. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's two perspectives on this. There's the I'm the seller yeah. and I'm the buyer. And most of our M&A work, not all of it, but most of our M&A work is on the sell side. You had let off. We are the number one advisor globally to private equity sell side. On the sell side, if you're advising somebody to sell the company, And if they're going to sell to a private equity group where it's just a financial investor coming in, there's no integration, right? If they're selling to a strategic where, hey, we're going to put your business together with ours, integration really matters. And I think that the number one thing for managers that are going to sell their business, the advice that I always have for them is over-communicate coming out of the gate here, right? You have a new partner. You have a new investor. You're new to them. They're new to you. Don't take anything for granted. Over-communicate like crazy coming out of the gate of what's going on, good and bad, right? Don't hide the bad if there's negative things that come up. Over-communicate. And the other thing you have to realize in any merger, over-communicate with your employees, right? If you have a culture that's not transparent and employees aren't empowered, your best people could leave with the uncertainty of a merger. And then it's kind of a death spiral when good people start leaving. So the advice we tend to have is, Communicate with your new partner, but over-communicate with your management team and your employees as to what's going on. Here's what's going to happen in this merger. Here's why. Here's an integration plan. We're going to communicate every week on what's going on with this integration plan. So I think sellers of businesses need to focus on that. And I think some of it goes true for the buyers. I think the advice we've had for integration, post-deal integration for buyers has been listen, we know you want to buy this business because there's some really good synergies and you think you can combine it with your business and you can eliminate some things and move slowly, right? Have a plan, have a 100-day, a 200-day, a year-long plan with the company. I think where we've seen integration fall down is people too quickly trying to get the benefit of these synergies. Don't forget the people aspect. We sold a business several years ago where they had bought a company not that far before we sold it, and it was a really good strategic fit. And they said, well, we can take their products and we can kind of push them through our salespeople and we can eliminate their salespeople. And actually, over time, that is exactly what has happened and should have happened. They just moved so quickly in trying to say, okay, we're going to take your products and your services and we're going to push them through our sales force. And they weren't trained enough. There was nuances in the existing sales force they didn't understand. And it created a real problem to the point where we actually had to delay the sale of the business. So what they wanted to do was the right thing to do. Moving a little more methodically would have helped. We're all dealing with this incredible speed of business in the markets. And a lot of that is driven by technology capabilities, regardless of what industry you're in. Do you see a difference or what are the key aspects in leadership in this environment of speed and change? One of the challenges leaders have, and this relates to technology and speed, is with technology, we are all always available. And with the ability to exchange information and share information so quickly, 
there is sometimes an expectation that people are going to look at things immediately, they're going to think about them, and they're going to make decisions. And like a lot of things, there's a good and a bad to it. I think technology in many ways has allowed everybody, including leaders, to be more productive, to have better and more information that's real-time at their fingertips, which is great. I think the cost of that is because there's such an expectation that you have all this information, you're continually getting it, you're going to respond to it, you're going to make decisions, that your day is so filled up with that that there is actually materially less time for medium and long-term thinking. Everything is responding to what's going on. So I know for myself, and I've got an incredible assistant who really manages my calendar, and I told her several years ago, I said, you have to block out periods of time in my week where there just will be no meetings. I need time to think. I need time to address medium and long-term goals because if not, the day's just going to get filled with immediate response. That's a full-time job. That's 8 to 10 at night if I really wanted to respond to that. So you have to think about that. I think, again, technology helps with access to information to make better decisions, to be a better leader, but it can also be overwhelming. Good tip to schedule it in. Yeah. Because otherwise I, you just don't get it. Your day will get filled with the urgent, not the most important. And you have to be able to discern between those two. So thinking about this change in our workforces and the pace at which they're living their lives as well as leaders, any thoughts on the differences today versus five, 10 years ago? We've got five generations in the workforce. We're pushing diversity. We're pushing gender mm -hmm. diversity. How does that impact leaders and culture, and how do you think about that? The interesting thing on the generational issue is I think it's a huge mistake as a leader if you don't recognize that each generation coming into the workforce is going to be different than you. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal two or three weeks ago that said something like 60 to 80 percent of millennials feel lonely at work. They don't feel connected they don't feel connected to their coworkers. They don't feel connected to the mission. That's a huge problem because if you know, feeling lonely or not connected is a corollary for not engaged. So I think you have a generation that they're used to being connected. Right? They're connected through social media. They're connected with everybody they've ever met at any point in time. And if you're not a company that focuses on, hey, our employees have to show up here and feel connected, and they have to feel connected with the mission. The one thing about the millennial generation, and on balance, I actually think this is a great thing, they want to have an impact, right? They want to feel connected to a mission that's important in some way, shape, or form, however they define that. You know, when I came into the workforce, there was no thought of that. It was, you know, I want to build a career. I want to generate some personal wealth. And you then start thinking about some of these things later in your career, at least in my generation. Millennials are coming out of college, and they want to make an impact. They want to have an impact day to day. They want to be working for an organization that's having an impact. And so I think as a leader, you have to recognize that and have a workforce where people can feel that way. And we don't want to be in that 60 or 80 percent of millennials feel lonely at work. And then diversity. Diversity is incredibly important. And we tend to think about diversity very broadly, right? I think obviously gender diversity and ethnic and racial diversity are incredibly important. But to me, the reason those are important is because you bring diversity of thought and you bring diversity of perspective. And you can have it in other ways, too. We actually have a diversity community here for veterans. They've had life experiences that most of us haven't had. And so I also think, particularly, our industry does not have a great, the investment banking industry does not have a great history of diversity. And 
interestingly, it, it has a pretty good track record of getting diversity in the workforce at the more analyst and associate levels. It has a poor record of maintaining that diversity to the senior levels. And I think if you just naturally say, well, diversity is going to happen, it's not going to happen. You have to be proactive. First of all, you have to value diversity of perspective and thought. And then you have to say, how do we get that in here? Interestingly, I had heard that the CEO of Goldman Sachs has mandated that their incoming analyst or associate class is going to be half women, just mandated it. As a firm, I don't think we want to go there yet, but what we want to do is create community groups within our organization where people that are of diversity or more diverse than most of our people can thrive and share ideas and have an impact on the organization. So you have to think about diversity in recruiting, you have to think about diversity in retention, and you have to think about diversity in leadership and management development. And again, it's not going to happen naturally if you don't take proactive steps to make it happen. So you're talking about that inclusive piece. You know, you can have a headcount, but to really include those folks in their thinking to add value to the business, it certainly seems based on your results that you guys are getting there. I think you have to look at it. If you, if you said, hey, historically, we would recruit at these schools and we'd take people from these MBA schools that have these grades and this work experience, and you value that, right, because those are important things. But then you have to say, well, we also value diversity. We may say, hey, this person may not have gone to one of those schools and you know, may not have the academic track record, but actually brings a diversity of thought to us that others don't, and we're going to value that, and we're going to hire that person. Looping back to some of the earlier comments on culture and communication with each new generation or group, do you have to change or modify your culture or do the people embrace the culture? How does that exchange work? I don't think we modify our culture in any way. I think our culture is one of inclusiveness, of open and honest communication, of being collaborative. And so I think those things lead into having a diverse workforce. I think we have to think differently about our tactics to drive diversity that's consistent with a culture statement that already values open-mindedness. And one of the key elements of our culture around management is context, not control, right? You will get more out of people if you give them the context of what you're trying to achieve than if you just say, I need you to do these 10 things and I need them done by tomorrow. They'll do them, and they'll be largely right. We hire good people, but you'll actually get more creative solutions. You'll draw out their diversity of perspective if you manage by context, not control. And that sounds great on paper. It's sometimes hard to always do in practice when you have people by nature have become very successful by being control freaks, right? And then you have to change that. And a lot of that is sending people to management training. We do diversity training here for all our people. Again, I think the culture doesn't change, but thinking differently about tactics to drive diversity consistent with the culture is what you need to do. And there's also that time squeeze, right? We talked a little bit about the pace of business and the volume of data and just forcing that slowdown so that you can take the time to deliver context, not just bullet point list of what needs to be done is challenging. We talk about in our leadership group here something that, and there's been a lot written about this, called the pause principle, right? Take a pause. There's a lot to do. Business is fast-paced. You have to be decisive. So we're not saying don't move away from being decisive, but take a pause. And take a pause to take in other people's perspectives. Take a pause to listen. Take a pause to think about something else and then come back to this. And so I think 
particularly now because you're just not naturally going to have a pause given the pace of work and the technology enablement of that. So I think you have to do that. So the other thing we're reading a lot about and seeing is this significant change of the CEO position and really then the whole C-suite position has a much shorter tenure than we have seen historically. And that's mostly, I think, in big corp, large cap. Are you seeing that same sort of management leadership level turn in middle market? Uh, The short answer to that is no. And I'll just look at Lincoln. I think one of the successes and the drivers of our success where we've really grown to be one of the leaders in what we do in a relatively short period of time, just a little bit over 20 years, has been consistency of leadership and management. We've grown this from really four originally, then to kind of seven, and then to over 650. If you look at the leadership and management, it's the same people. We may be in slightly different roles, but it's the same people. And so I do think consistency, first of all, I don't disagree with you. You're seeing shorter periods of leaders. And I think some of this gets to a driver of this economy has been technology. The technology sector is growing rapidly. And you have a lot of businesses that are started by entrepreneurs, and then they grow to a point where they need more professional management. So you see that sort of turnover. So I think in the technology side, you're seeing more CEOs come in and stay for shorter periods of time. For us, I think as long as you're evolving as a leader and you acknowledge that you have to evolve and that the only constant is change and you've got to adapt to that, sometimes companies feel that, hey, we have a leader that's not adapting to it and we've got to change it. I think if you have leaders that can adapt to that, there is a benefit of consistency of leadership, consistency of culture. It gets back to what I said earlier. Culture is directly driven by the leaders. And if you're changing your leaders and you're changing your culture a lot, that can be incredibly disruptive on your business. Thanks for the insights. Final question. What's top goal for Lincoln International for 2020? Well, top goal is to exceed last year's growth. But, there you uh, go. But I think there's lots of tactics. I think we want to embrace technology more and how we deliver our services, how we interact with our clients. That's a key goal for us. Another goal for us is we've rolled out what we call Lincoln University, which is really a cutting-edge basically like a college syllabus with outside instructors, inside instructors for all of our employees. You're going to be given a budget to set your development for the year, and we have a whole course catalog. And so that's rolling out full-time this year in the U.S. and other pockets around the globe where it'll be global by the end of the year. So personally, I think some of the initiatives we have going on from a technology standpoint and the role at Lincoln University are two of the things I'm most excited about. Well, congratulations, and we'll watch for that success through 2020. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Taking the Lead is a production of BPI Group, and the views expressed are those of the host and guests. For more information, please visit bpi-group.us. Music for this podcast is courtesy of Jazzar.